Hey now, we are getting over and I am the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, here to lead you through these hard times. That uh, with episode 481 of your favorite professional wrestling podcast. That's right, getting over is back once again and boy oh boy do we have a show for you. First of all, it is Thursday, so you know exactly what that means. We are here to break down everything that happened in the world of AEW and NXT this week. But one of the big things that happened in the world of AEW completely revolved around none other than CM Punk. So the Silver King will be kicking off the show with CM Punk and AEW coming momentarily, of course, NXT picking things up on the back end. But we do have a loaded show for you once again today. Allow me off the top to get us right into it with a reminder that this podcast is all about Defy. So please remember to head on over to Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Leave us those five-star ratings on Apple. Take a little extra time. Leave a five-star written review. If you do, we will read it live right here on the show. Also, please remember to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast for episode drops, news, analysis, highlights, all of that good stuff. And if you already follow us, don't forget to share and respond to our tweets. Help promote the account and the podcast and send in your questions and comments for the show because we will read them right here on the air. Again, all on Twitter at Getting Overcast. Also, I certainly would not hate it if you remembered. I happen to love the number... Five. And I'd hate it even less if you loved it as well, because for just five bucks a month or $50 for the entire year, you can become an official getting overhead. Visit buymeacoffee.com slash getting over. Sign up, become an official getting overhead. You will get bonus audio if the four major shows, the Monday through Friday, four major shows, Collision on Saturday. We're not doing a live bonus show for that. But beyond all of that, you also get a news post every single week. We try to deliver that to you On Friday, of course, we do extra ones if big breaking news happens and and other things need to be covered. But we deliver all of that to you just as bonuses. What we really hope is that you're contributing to us and becoming an official Getting Overhead to support the Getting Over Wrestling podcast long term. So please consider visiting buymeacoffee.com slash getting over and doing exactly that. As I said here at the top of the show, uh, there's a ton to talk about today. This is going to be a very interesting episode. We are going to break down everything that happened across AEW in terms of Rampage, Collision, and Dynamite, all of this leading into All In going down next weekend. We will break down NXT leading into Heat Wave coming next week, but we are going to kick off today's show with a look at the shit that went down with CM Punk over the weekend leading into this week. So don't forget, we do have timestamps in the episode descriptions, so if at any point you want to skip around the show or you've heard part of the show and you want to go back and listen to it later, or you only want to hear NXT, or you only want to hear AEW, whatever the case might be, you can check those timestamps, you can jump around. But as always, I hope you listen to the entire show. So look, as we get into addressing the CM Punk situation, you know, I never thought I'd really know what Fiddy meant when he said, I've been patiently waiting for a track to explode on. You can stun if you want and your ass will get rolled on. And if it feels like my flow's been hot for so long, if you're thinking I'm a fucking fall off, you're so wrong. I didn't get shot nine times, okay? I didn't get dropped for my label. But I did have to wait four and a half days to talk about this CM Punk situation. And I am not going to waste that opportunity. 
this is one of those instances here on the podcast where I truly wish we at Getting Over were like a deeper show from like a staffing and production standpoint. Because you could bet your ass that if we were fully legit in that way with YouTube production and the whole nine yards, I would have clips pulled of all the comments that I've made and that Chris Vanini has made about CM Punk, Tony Khan, and the inevitability of further negative situations occurring involving all of these parties. We talked about it initially after Brawl Out. We talked about it when Collision returned. And there's just so much material there that I would love to share with you. And you're welcome to go back and listen to those episodes. But it would be glorious if I could intersperse those here and I had the time to do it. On that note, let me say, if anyone with that type of experience is interested in getting involved in the podcast to that end, please let me know. We could use the help. But in lieu of that, allow me to say this. Every opinion I am about to share with you, I have already shared before on this topic during episodes of this podcast. That's how easy it was to predict this entire situation unfolding in this manner. And really, there's no ending to it in sight. Let's start by getting into, I guess to quote Limbiscuit, the he said, she said bullshit as we distill the facts as best we know them about what happened recently with CM Punk, fellow AEW wrestlers, and yes, even executives at AEW Collision. So Saturday night after Collision ended with CMFTR in that trio's main event, they cut a go-home promo in the ring for the crowd. This did not air live on television. Here's CM Punk. supermarket and I figured out why they call him Hangman is because the pegs in the toy aisle are full of Hangman action figures because nobody wants to buy them. Oh! He's a peg warmer. Unlike me who moves merchandise and pops ratings and sells toys. What is a fact is the people who say that certainly aren't the chin of AEW because they, the lights go out faster than what? Than what? GTS, go to sleep. I don't know what I'm trying to do. I got locked too. I told the house, house of black no chops and the chop me some very mad. Yeah, so clearly CM Punk lost at the end what he was trying to say. And honestly, he lost even in the moment what he was trying to say. He was saying they call him hangman because he's hanging all over the pegs in these toy stores. I mean, I guess that's what he was trying to say. But to distill all of this, what we have is Hangman Page's name coming out of Punk's mouth in a clearly unplanned, half-assed, non-kayfabe insult about merchandise as part of a meandering, stupid promo that obviously completely fell apart. And I can't say this for sure, but I saw Hangman signs in the crowd at Collision, so I can only assume like Punk saw those signs, got angry because, you know, this is my show, my show, and acted out rather than compartmentalizing the annoyance, behaving like an adult, and moving on. Also, real rich for a guy to sarcastically mention guys calling themselves the heart, soul, and spirit of AEW when, you know, the company is named after them and wouldn't exist without them. Meanwhile, Punk is the one who waited for it to succeed 
before he jumped on board once it was already hot. But this outburst, which is the right description of it, follows his comments on the first collision about counterfeit bucks. That followed comments he made about Hangman in an ESPN article before that show. And obviously before all of that, he shit on Hangman on TV. Realize now, this is three times Punk has referenced them on TV or in the media since Brawl Out. And that's not counting multiple times he's used his media friends to put out stories about him wanting to work with the elite and trying to do an olive branch, but the Bucks wanting nothing to do with him. So they're the bad guys. Now, let me add another fact as we know it. The Bucks and Punk have an agreement through AEW not to talk about each other publicly. No such agreement exists with Hangman for one reason or another, even though Hangman's promo was one of the key elements that set Punk off initially. Back to the facts as we know them. Now, this outburst from Punk led to a series of further revelations that spewed out from all angles. All of the reporting that we are about to reference here is via PW Torch, Wrestling Observer, PW Insider, and Fightful. And the vast majority of it confirms what the others are reporting. And of course, we point out when there are unique items as well. So what came out first is that Hangman Page was turned away from attending Collision despite being brought in with plans to cut a pre-taped promo. This was seemingly debunked with PW Insider reporting that Page was sent elsewhere, not because of Punk, but due to the location of the promo moving. I'm iffy on that being true. It's certainly possible the location was changed on purpose, but it also seems likely that it was done to cover for Punk not wanting him at the show. And if you saw the promo that they're talking about from Dynamite on Wednesday, again, this was pre-taped and we're going to get into a ton of issues I have with this promo. It was him standing behind an ambulance outside a garage door. That could have been any garage door anywhere. It could have been at the arena, a different side of the arena, another location that wasn't the arena. But why would you bring an ambulance to a different garage door when you could just use one at the arena? So if he was turned away from the arena or wasn't allowed to go inside the arena and just did this promo out front, that pretty much tells you all you need to know. Now, apparently, Punk has since texted an apology to Hangman for the post-show promo that we played. How do we know that? Because he sent his media army to claim that in as many spots as possible. And look, an apology is great. That's what real men do. It was appropriate and it was necessary. But this is hysterical. Why? Well, first, you have to remember, Punk was angry at the Bucks years ago when they reached out to him via text about joining AEW, saying that sending text messages and not just calling someone was unprofessional. And then second, the apology must be as loud and as public as the disrespect. I mean, what an immense hypocrite. In this case, the disrespect came live in front of a few thousand people, and it surely reached hundreds of thousands more online, not to mention all the other times this guy has trashed Hangman. Meanwhile, the apology was a text message to one person. Imagine thinking that is anywhere near the same level. This guy has a Twitter account, CM Punk. He uses it all the time. I'll write the tweet for him. Here it is. I regret what I said Saturday at Collision. I was trying to be funny and missed the mark. My bad, Hangman. Done. Incident settled. But this is just the tip of the iceberg. Beyond being the star of the show, Punk apparently sees Collision 
as his show, according to reports. And as such, is creating this bunker mentality backstage. Collision does this better than Dynamite. Dynamite may do this, but we don't do that here on Collision. We're better than that. Apparently, he's telling people he wants to lead Collision in a way he feels the Jacksons don't lead AEW, which is part of what he criticized them for during that brawl out incident. Forget splitting the roster by virtue of creative. This is divisive stuff. Splitting the roster by mentality, attitude, personality. Furthermore, Punk is apparently telling people at Collision he wants it to be a low drama environment. That's like Peacemaker, you know, the John Cena character that he plays, seeking peace, but he's willing to murder children in order to keep that peace. Punk doesn't want drama, yet apparently he's the one creating it. Now, to that end, Punk has allegedly been confronting wrestlers he believes are aligned with his enemies, meaning the elite. And he has gone so far as to literally ban them from collision tapings. Basically, he somehow appears to have veto power over not only who appears on the show, but who even attends the tapings and sits backstage. This is a wrestler, not the president or a lead booker, not an executive, a wrestler. I didn't mean to go AI there, but it kind of felt like I did. Punk apparently confronted Ryan Nemeth, Dolph Ziggler's brother, at the Dynamite appearance he made in June over a tweet Nemeth sent that did not name Punk, but did call him literally the softest man alive. That was coming out of the ESPN interview. Nemeth is apparently all over being the elite as well. Now, I stopped watching that show years ago. But anyway, the tweet apparently led to an incredibly heated argument that became an extended, aggressive, intimate yelling match. PW Torch said that Punk berated Nemeth, but they eventually shook hands and went their own ways, even though there was animosity remaining. Apparently, Nemeth was called into collision this Saturday for a match, only to get sent away, just like Hangman, Though in this case, no one disagrees that it was Punk's call. There's even a report from PW Insider that says Punk may have sent him away because Nemeth was saying hello to groups of people in the hotel before collision, but didn't walk over to Punk to say hi. Like how childish and ridiculous can you be? And again, how the hell is it his call that this guy can't be on the show? Tony Khan presumably booked this guy for TV, spent at least hundreds, maybe a couple thousand dollars bringing him to town, hotel, all that type of stuff, all for Punk to pitch a fit that wastes this guy's time and throws away some of Tony's money. And why the hell is Punk so bothered by Ryan Nemeth, of all people? Like, no offense to him, he's not a guy who needs to get big leagued. He's already at the bottom of this entire talent roster. Now, apparently, Matt Hardy and Isaiah Cassidy have been kept away for similar reasons of Punk feeling like they're aligned with the elite and can't be trusted. But here's the one that's truly, truly astonishing. Christopher Daniels. Punk has seemingly kept Christopher Daniels, AEW's head of talent relations, and by the way, one of the most respected guys in the industry, away from collision. Let me repeat this just in case what I said was not clear. CD is the head of AEW talent relations at least one third of the talent in the company is on collision. And the guy is not allowed to be at the show because of one person, CM Punk. This absolutely floored me. Punk's reasoning is apparently that Ace Steel is not allowed at collision. So Daniels shouldn't be there either because he was also involved in Brawl Out. 
And apparently Tony Khan either agrees or acquiesced to Punk's demands here. But here's a major difference between Steele and Daniels during Brawl Out. Steele allegedly bit a guy and threw a chair. Daniels, I guess, stood there and probably yelled, hey, you guys should stop fighting. Here's another difference. Steele is a guy. Daniels is your fucking head of talent relations. How could anyone with a brain allow one action or person to be equated to the other action or person? How could any business owner or general manager allow an employee, a talent, to dictate the terms of how the executive staff can operate? It's absolutely wild to me. Imagine going into work on what would otherwise be your day off and being told at the front door, sorry, dude, Phil is here and doesn't want you inside. Now imagine that you're an executive in that company and Phil is the top salesman. That's what's happening in AEW right now. That's what Tony Khan is allowing to happen in AEW right now. There are also reports that Punk has tried to push his way into meetings involving the elite for what he claims are attempts to like mend fences and work future programs. This is one of the items that his friendly media has been pushing. Apparently there was a meeting set with the Young Bucks and FTR because they're doing the all-in program and Punk tried to join despite not being invited. You can't write this stuff. How does someone on one hand eject people who have loose relationships with the elite from his show, yet at the same time desires to meet with these people? I get that Punk and FTR are close, but holy shit, is he dragging their reputation down with every passing week? And look, maybe there is something to be said for it not being Punk directly telling these people they aren't needed for collision. It could be Tony Khan or Pat Buck or another executive sending that message. And maybe we can even stretch it and say, Punk's unaware of these moves, but Tony and Pat or whomever are doing them to prevent potential issues. Well, that's the same excuse you may remember that was given for the entire Colt Cabana situation last time. Khan moved him off AEW to Ring of Honor, not because Punk requested it supposedly, but because Tony just wanted to do that on his own. And we can assume because he wanted to placate Punk and make sure that he didn't have any issues coming to AEW tapings. But either way, whether Tony did that directly because he was told to by Punk or, you know, in a vacuum because he was like, oh, I don't want to upset this guy. Punk is the reason for it. In this case, at least, there are direct reports of Punk claiming responsibility for this stuff. Don't forget, Punk was indignant about those Cabana reports last year. Meanwhile, he's seemingly admitting to being responsible for doing exactly that here. Again, wild. Both the most and least shocking element that was unveiled in all of this reporting came individually from PW Torch. And I'm going to read it verbatim here. When Punk first returned earlier this summer, Khan stood up backstage in the gorilla position with his headset on and started pumping his fist and chanting CM Punk enthusiastically as Punk walked by. The feeling backstage among wrestlers not in a position of power with a big contract is to lay low when it comes to Punk because you don't want to be on what is essentially his enemies list. Now, I would call this horseshit, except we know how Tony acts in Gorilla. We've seen it on that AEW All Access show. And I bet that all of you, as soon as I read that description, had a picture in your mind's eye of Tony acting exactly like that as Punk walked by him. I'm not saying it's true because we can picture it. But it's kind of true because we can picture it. Or at least 
it's believable based on everything that we've seen. And the idea that a guy in punk who yells about workers' rights and unions and all this type of stuff is creating an environment where his coworkers have to walk on eggshells around him while he gets away with whatever the hell he wants, it would almost be poetic if it wasn't pathetic. This also kind of proves what Triple H once said about Punk in that worked shoot feud they had in WWE. Punk always hated on John Cena and WWE's backstage politicking, but Triple H called him out for not actually being angry about that stuff, but rather being jealous that it wasn't him in control. And I did not cut that clip, but you can Google or go to YouTube, Triple H CM Punk promo confrontation. You'll find exactly what I'm talking about. As we said, when Collision was announced and Punk came back, this is what happens when someone does wrong and literally suffers zero consequences whatsoever from their superiors. Let's remember that after winning the world title on AEW's signature pay-per-view, one of them at least, Punk trashed three of the company's executive vice presidents, talked about it being his company, and was involved in a backstage fight with other adults, all while his boss allowed himself to look like a buffoon for letting it happen right in front of him without uttering even a single word trying to prevent it. Punk was clearly only out of action due to injury, and he was allowed back almost immediately once he was cleared. They even allowed him to remain champion with this stupid real-world championship gimmick they're doing. They didn't even keep the stain on him of being forced to relinquish the title at one point due to his actions. And forget seeing consequences. You can argue Punk was rewarded for his bad behavior. He got his own show, along with clearly some sort of booking and personnel power. If you're in his position, how could you not assume that you're just as powerful, if not more powerful, than an executive vice president? I would bet anything, if you asked Punk honestly, he sees himself on Tony's level from a decision-making standpoint. Creating collision and putting Punk front and center, it's like having a baby to try and save a marriage. It might create some excitement initially, and maybe it paints over a few minor problems. But in the end, the major cracks are gonna show, you're gonna get divorced, except now you have a kid to worry about. It's delusional decision-making by the head of a company. Tony Khan's handling of this situation at Brawl Out was absurd. In the aftermath, his inaction was appalling. Now, it's just straight laughable because everything that has happened since Punk returned has been completely and specifically predictable. Again, we literally shared all of this criticism after Brawl Out and again stated everything that has happened recently would indeed transpire on the Instant Reaction podcast to the announcement of Punk's return. But I guess all is well and good as long as there's still thank you Tony parties for him after his own show. Look, Punk is immensely petty, and he's also coming off like a top-tier hypocrite here. Beyond the apology as loud as the disrespect stuff, he has been out here calling wrestlers soft only to ban people from his show due to their tweets and relationships. If you're friends with Matt, you can't be friends with me. That's high, forget high school, that's middle school shit. Don't get me wrong, Punk is allowed to feel uncomfortable around certain people, all of us are. And Tony is allowed to acquiesce to his biggest star and choose him over others, no doubt about that. But at some point, it must be impossible for this locker room to see Tony as neutral or impartial when it's always whatever Punk wants he gets. And it goes so far as to result in someone of Christopher Daniels' role and stature 
not being allowed at one of the brand's two biggest shows. I mean, could you imagine if the roles were reversed? The fury that would be spewing out of Punk. He'd probably be calling for Tony to fire Hangman if he said the same shit about him. Or what if he traveled to Dynamite and the Young Bucks didn't want him there? They're all EVPs. He would lose his shit. Probably the biggest issue is that Collision's only been on for a couple of months and this has already happened. Punk is clearly obsessed with trying to get over Hangman, at least in the public eye. And there are clearly still unresolved issues stemming from Brawl Out because, you know, the conflict was never actually resolved. And that's what happens when you allow someone like Punk to get away with murder without any repercussions. Nothing registers in the brain to give them pause when a situation arises like the one that did Saturday. If Punk had actually been punished in some regard, he might have thought better about opening his mouth. Because don't get it twisted. The only reason all of this other stuff came out is because Punk opened the door with the public hangman comments. Clearly, there have been backstage issues for weeks now, and people were waiting for the opportunity to talk. And clearly, Punk is the catalyst for all of it. Never do we hear any story about Punk being the victim or someone going after him, unless you consider the original Hangman promo, which, okay, one case. But again, he's the catalyst for nearly all of it. And it's how he handled that Hangman promo that caused this pile of shit to begin forming. Here's the key. We are literally a year removed from Brawl Out, two weeks ahead of the biggest show in AEW history. And nothing has changed. Nobody has changed. Certainly not Punk. Certainly not Tony. He continues to enable Punk with his actions, as opposed to, you know, doing the alternative. It's like rather than treat the wound, they just dressed it, forgot about it, and let it fester. And now the entire extremity is infected. This remains a disastrous situation as far as I'm concerned. Not just for the elite and Punk and Tony, but AEW as a whole. They have not just literally, but materially split the locker room. This is how and why good people leave companies that they would never otherwise consider leaving. Unfair practices, a hierarchy beyond the one established by normal workplace standards, and poor leadership that allows issues to just remain unresolved and create additional problems. And look, let me be clear. What happened this week, it's not brawl out. It's not even close to that. In a vacuum, the hangman comments were relatively minor, but they opened the wound and they exposed all of this stuff that's been festering under the surface. Punk had an opportunity to prove brawl out was a mistake. He was injured and angry. He was out of his mind and everything got to him and things just blew up. He could have turned a corner, maybe sought out anger management or forget that a third party just to help you learn how to compartmentalize your emotions. He could have walked into collision and just been focused on truly helping AEW the way that he says he does. Instead, he almost seems to allow anger and unhappiness to fuel him as if he can't exist without it. And folks, that is no way to live, okay? I said it last year, I repeated it a few months ago, and I will say it again now. Tony Khan should have fired CM Punk after Brawl Out. It's not an easy decision to make. I'm not trying to claim that it is, but it would have been the right one. As the head of a company, I would never let someone, even my top star, get away with tearing apart my product and my people to the media, especially after I just anointed him my champion for the second time. And if I was sitting next to that person while it was happening, I would have stopped the press conference cold 
and remove them from the area physically with security if necessary. And if I found out after that fact that he was involved in a brawl with those same people he insulted minutes later, I'd consider legal action. And even if somehow I allowed that person to come back for one reason or another and gave them a second chance, the leash would be so incredibly short that they would be on a zero tolerance policy for the remainder of their career. After this shit, look, again, what he said about Hangman was really minor. And I would have already fired this guy to the fucking sun if it was me. But what I absolutely would not do is take zero action again. So what would I do, given the situation? Well, clearly, Tony is not going to fire Punk. So what I would do, as soon as Brian Danielson is healthy, I would turn him babyface, I would position him as the top name in the entire company like he should have been when he initially signed. And if not that, at least the top name on Collision. I would then take Punk and I would relegate him to an upper mid-card role on the show. He can go after the TNT title, he can win a bunch of feuds, put over some younger talent, and do his damn job to help the company. And if every once in a while you wanna bubble him up for a main event type of feud, go ahead and do it. I would never put him anywhere near the world championship. And again, even though he already would have been fired in my world, or at least would be on a zero tolerance policy at this point, I would then put him now on a zero tolerance policy. One more outburst, you're gone, dude. It's not gonna work. And you need to sign a contract stating as much, because if not, I'm just gonna fire you right now. That's what I would do. He would never be my champion. And he would lose all designs on Collision being his show. And if he didn't like any of those things, his ass could walk. So look, I took a lot of your time there. I did say a lot. Let's get to the actual damn professional wrestling that we are here to talk about on today's show. As mentioned, we will continue here with AEW and then move to NXT at the end of the show. A lot did happen in AEW this week, building towards all in. I do my normal breakdown of all the shows here at the top. So let me just go ahead and do that again. Collision, I actually, I gotta tell you, I thought it was a kind of dreadful show. Three of the five matches featured jobber level talent. There was a great promo early and the main event delivered, but it was a two hour slog. Definitely the worst of the nine or 10 episodes that there have been to date. I would say it was on the same level as Rampage this week. Dynamite easily took the mantle for best show, but even it had a variety of issues, largely as far as I was concerned, surrounding lazy booking. Uh, Daniel Mason, one of our uh, listeners on Twitter, asked me this question. He said, did every match on Dynamite have a person or group come out and or interfere? So he asked, I checked, five of six matches, the only one not having that was the women's match, and four of five major segments included that element. That means nine of 11 things that were booked for the show featured an attack, interference, and or distraction, or more than one of those things. It was still a much more solid show, Dynamite was, compared to Collision, and there were plenty of exciting elements that made it breeze by on Wednesday night, but as I said, definitely flawed. I do have one more uh, Twitter mention from... Uh, JFTR at JFTR76. He said the original aura around AEW was that it was better pure wrestling and less corny segments than WWE. That has been completely eliminated. I don't think that's fair. I actually saw a number of these comments on Twitter Wednesday coming out of Dynamite. On a show-by-show basis, 
AEW does still deliver better wrestling. Forget better wrestling because that's objective. More wrestling. It delivers more wrestling than WWE. And it stays away from many of those short match tropes unless a jobber is involved. But AEW has its own flaws for sure. Like corny segments, definitely. It sometimes puts matches on shows as a means of doing something else. So like they'll do a match that'll be like a squash. It'll be 90 seconds or two minutes. And they do that only so there's a post-match attack or only so there's a post-match promo where you don't need that match. I'd rather Jay White or CM Punk or John Moxley or whomever get two additional minutes on their match rather than shoving a match that doesn't mean anything into a segment just so a guy has an excuse to go out there and cut a promo. I think, you know, AEW tries to be different than WWE in that they don't want people just walking in the ring with a mic, cutting a promo and nothing else happening, right? Uh, That's why they always have like Tony Schiavone out there or Rene Paquette doing an interview so that there's someone for them to work off or they do it after a match like we're talking about. But what was the best segment from Dynamite on Wednesday? You can argue it was MJF and Adam Cole entering, grabbing a mic, and just cutting a promo. So I'm okay with AEW, you know, moving towards WWE. You can say, in some ways, WWE is moving towards AEW a little bit. They are putting on longer, better matches, especially on premium live events. But even on TV, it's not rare for there to be an episode of Raw or SmackDown where you have two matches that are 3.5 stars or better that go 12, 14, 15, 18 minutes. Like WWE is improving because of Triple H. He understands what some section of fans want. AEW is improving in some ways of not only being professional wrestling, but I don't think it's fair to say that AEW is no longer better wrestling or more wrestling than WWE just because they have some of those corny segments, nor do I think it's fair, uh, fair to say that WWE is not appealing as much to the general audience because it is focusing more on wrestling, again, especially on premium live events. So I think it's a mix, but yes, it is fair to say that AEW is not the same product that it was as little as a year ago, let alone two or three years ago. No question about that. So with it, let's get into the entire five hours of AEW programming that we got this week on Rampage. There was a video package suggesting the ROH tag team titles were among the most prestigious in wrestling. Great job with the clips, but it was a heavily scripted voiceover by Ian Riccoboni. It would have been better with wrestlers putting over the titles. I don't just need a play-by-play man doing it. And then you had Aussie Open, who they are the champions. Uh, They squashed some jobbers in two minutes and then cut a really shitty promo and accepted the challenge of MJF and Adam Cole. The promo almost made my ears bleed. This is what I was just talking about, though. They did the match just so they could do the promo. Screw that. Let those guys come out, accept the challenge, and you're done. Move on. Give more time to one of the better matches that was on a one-hour show. On Dynamite, MJF took Adam Cole to Outback Steakhouse so they could get prepared for Aussie Open. MJF was freaked out because it was the best meal of his life, and Aussie Open, therefore, must be great wrestlers. Cole later bought Crocodile Dundee DVDs. MJF pulled up a video of two kangaroos boxing, saying that's how they're going to win the titles, by doing kangaroo kicks. Then they set up a kiddie pool and a blow-up crocodile and double clotheslined a guy. Then we saw a closed door with Tony Khan apparently yelling at both of them for doing a double clothesline outside of the ring, as if post-match attacks and stuff don't happen all the time, backstage and wherever. MJF then walked out and he mentioned the 2024 contract situation. 
So then Khan came out and asked what he said, and then he dapped them up. Then they pulled up in a Corvette, and MJF had to take a dump. Then Roderick Strong ran after them and kicked the tire of the car when he missed Cole, so he hurt his foot. If all this sounded like a fever dream, I mean, holy shit, it was. Talk about like overdoing this concept and not understanding why the earlier segments were hitting. Everything worked initially because there was a question about whether they would actually get along. There was the tension. And then down the stretch, they did a couple legitimately funny, simple segments. But the last two weeks of this have been way too buddy-buddy without any real rhyme or reason in developing a relationship or building towards a specific match. It's just really, really, really corny, bad comedy. Now, I know there's going to be a huge section of fans that love this and think I'm crazy, but I thought this was actually terrible. And do you guys remember when Tony said he would never be an on-screen character? Even if you dismiss his prior TV appearances and dismiss the fact that he was a character on screen for Impact because that's Impact, it's not AEW, he was 100% a character in this circumstance. What I would have loved to have them do instead was do like the George Steinbrenner character from Seinfeld, where it's someone else pretending to be Tony, dressed up like Tony, you see the back of his head, he's screaming at MJF and Adam Cole, you're seeing their reactions to it. Instead, you get it behind a closed door, which was weird, then Tony comes out anyway, it just, this thing sucked, it did, it was terrible, but at least we got another segment with these guys that came after it immediately that was a total palate cleanser. It almost allowed you to forget this garbage that you saw just before it. So you had MJF and Adam Cole hit the ring after the commercial break for their promo segment. This was ahead of the AEW title match at All In. They were focused on that. Cole talked about his concussion recovery and coming a long way and how once the bell rings, he's gonna do whatever it takes to win the championship. MJF said, hey, cute story, I got a better one. He name dropped WWE and Cody Rhodes talking about how he talked his way into an opportunity at the original All In. MJF said that match got him an AEW deal and all he's done since is work his way to becoming AEW champion. MJF then called Cole his best friend, but put over their friendship saying, hey, look, Friendship's great, love you, great guy. The title is most important to me and no one is on my level. Then they traded catchphrases and fist bump twice before Aussie Open attacked out of the crowd. MJF and Cole chased them out of the ring. Cole then positioned himself behind MJF for an attack, but then just stood up. Fans chanted, hug it out, so they did. But Cole looked at the AEW title on the canvas while he was hugging MJF. Strong and the kingdom shook their heads watching it all unfold backstage. And look, this segment was night and day better than what we just discussed with Outback and the kiddie pool. Both guys laid out their stories, their cases for needing to be champion at the end of All In. We got another tease of a turn, yet they still came together at the end. And MJF, dude delivered a promo of the year contender. No doubt about it. You could make an argument. It's in the top spot or the top two spots right now. We're gonna have to remember this one when we go back to the awards at the end of the year. The first hour of Dynamite was strong, but this was the crossover segment between hour one and hour two, and it was easily the best thing we got on the entire show. On Collision, Ricky Starks was out first. Tony Schiavone shared that Starks was suspended 30 days from wrestling for beating Ricky Steamboat with his belt. That's like one of those paid work suspensions. Like the guy is literally still on the show, but he doesn't have to worry about injuring himself by getting physical. That's like a dream scenario. How is that a punishment? If anything, that's 
That's a benefit to the guy. Starks even announced that he got a manager's license so he can cause chaos over the next month. He said blood was on CM Punk's hands for bringing Steamboat into the mix, and that he was going to start a war next week because there's no one like him. Outstanding main event level promo from Starks. The booking is kind of stupid, but he sold the hell out of it and made me care about him in storyline. The two best segments I think we got this week were MJF and Adam Cole promo on Dynamite, Ricky Starks promo on Collision. On Dynamite, Kenny Omega sat down with Jim Ross talking about his relationship with Don Callis, and he suggested Callis was maybe like drugging him with steroids while he was a kid. Omega said that he was going to try to find reasons to not make his entire existence about getting revenge on Callis. He started talking about eliminating Konosuke Takeshka when Callis interrupted the interview. That allowed Jay White and Juice Robinson to attack Omega from behind, with Takeshka joining the party. AEW said Omega went to the hospital where Hangman Page was waiting for him. Page then cut a promo, which they said was at a hospital, but he was actually standing outside a garage door with an open ambulance behind him, and he was somehow drinking a beer there despite it being a hospital. He announced, presumably an hour or two, maybe, after this attack, that he would be teaming with Kota Ibushi and Omega to fight the trio of heels. Then a guy came up and told Paige he can't drink there because it's a hospital, so he chugged his beer. The storyline here is mostly fine. The production of this was ridiculous. You had Omega randomly in Jacksonville at Daly's place, yet somehow Callus and Bullet Club knew he would be there for an attack, and Callus flew in these guys from different parts of America to all come and ambush him on a random day in Jacksonville. And by the way, Hangman also happened to randomly be in Jacksonville for no reason whatsoever, even though we know, of course, that this segment got taped in Greensboro, North Carolina, because of all the CM Punk stuff that we just mentioned. And yet, he's also informed about this attack, is able to get to the hospital to see Kenny, and gets a six-man match made for the biggest show in wrestling history, quote-unquote, inside of an hour or two because of it. I mean, <laughs> like... And what are we doing here, folks? Now, look, in terms of the booking, like the match itself happening. That's going to be a banger. And as a fan who knows about New Japan, White didn't need that much reason to side with Callus to go after Omega. But if I was an AEW only fan, I would want it explained to me why Bullet Club Gold sided with Callus and Takeshka when Callus was just working with Blackpool Combat Club a month ago. I wouldn't so much call this thrown together, but it's clear they didn't really care about telling the story outside of the Omega Callus Takeshka part of it. And again, when you consider all the elements that could have been introduced to really tell this story and the ridiculousness of them just all being in Jacksonville for this, it really does not come together well. And going back to the Hangman promo thing that we talked about regarding CM Punk and Hangman perhaps not being allowed in the building for a collision or being told his promo would be taped in a different location. When you look at this and you see that it was just in front of a garage door that looked like at, it was at an arena, what other location did they need to do that at? It, it didn't really make sense to me. He, he could have done that promo anywhere as long as there was an ambulance. Another element here that was funny was Jim Ross was the one doing the interview with Kenny Omega. And while Omega's getting the absolute shit kicked out of him, the camera kept going back to JR and his face was like some combination of like, this is stupid, which obviously he wouldn't purposely do. And 
I don't want any part of this. Like he was just sitting there watching the whole thing happen. He's not screaming for them to stop. He's not doing anything. Was he having like flashbacks to being set on fire or getting put in the mandible claw the last time he tried to get involved in something like this? I, I just, I, I found the entire thing really, really odd. It was almost like a sketch the way they kept going back to JR that way. It, I, you know, I just had to put it out there. So staying with Dynamite, Callus was then in the ring with Chris Jericho for the next segment. Jericho said JAS walking out on him last week made him reconsider a lot of things, but he doesn't join factions. He creates them. Yet then Jericho decided to join the Callus family and get back to his roots with Don. They hugged and celebrated. They were about to leave the ring. Jericho realized there was another painting with a shroud over it in the ring, presumably for him. Callus tried to stop him from unveiling it, but Jericho revealed an image of Callus holding Jericho's decapitated head by its hair. Callus admitted that he thought Jericho would say no because of his ego, which is the biggest in the entire business. Jericho talked about Callus being out of the business until he brought him back and called him a real low-life piece of trash. Callus smacked him. Jericho went back after him. Then Takeshka saved Callus, and Will Ospreay came in from out of nowhere with Hidden Blade. Ospreay then hit him with a chair. Jericho bladed. Callus smashed the painting over his head, and it was over. Sammy Guevara ran in after it was pretty much over to make the save. And then like an hour later, Jericho was in the training room being treated, except no one decided to wipe any of the like random lines of blood off of his head. It was all dried. Jericho challenged Osprey, saying they're going to be able to have the match they were supposed to have during the pandemic, but never did. He also said he would make Osprey drink his own blood and embarrass him at Wembley Stadium. Even more so than I said a moment ago with the Bullet Club, there was zero explanation for Osprey siding with Callus or wanting to go after Jericho. The segment itself was also nonsensical. Like, let's make believe Jericho did what Callus expected. How exactly would the painting deal have transpired? Callus like curses him out, shows him the painting, and then Jericho stares at it for so long he doesn't notice two guys running into the ring to attack him. Like, it was hot. The segment was hot. So that overcame a lot of the plot holes here. And Jericho's promo in the training room was actually great. It's just strange that they spent a month plus telling us a Jericho Callus storyline for it to lead to a match with someone heretofore unaffiliated with Callus. Why not just build a Jericho Osprey story? I know Will was busy. He was doing the G1 over with New Japan. He can cut promos. Those can appear on AEW television. That's what they did for uh, Forbidden Door. They had some of the Japanese performers cut promos. They didn't send them to America. And also, you have Osprey being booked as a heel, but this thing's in London and he's kind of like a baby-faced tweener in New Japan. They're gonna cheer him there, yet they're trying to use this as an opportunity to turn Jericho face. The whole thing just really doesn't work with what they're doing. And look, if anyone's gonna get a good match out of Jericho in 2023, it's gonna, it's gonna be Osprey. We'll see if it actually happens at all in. On Dynamite, the Young Bucks fought the guns. On Collision, White said they are the most elite version of the faction ever created, and the guns wanted to prove they're the best brother tag team in AEW. The Bucks attacked during the guns' entrance here. Matt Jackson hit an Escalera arm drag Huracarana combo. Nick then did a Pendulum X-Factor and said, suck it. Matt ate 310 to Yuma with Nick breaking the fall with a coup de gras. I should mention there was no tagging for a really extended stretch preceding that. Then the finish was an assisted O'Connor roll where Nick Shoulders were fully pinned for more than three seconds, but Rick Knox just stopped counting because Nick was unable to get out of it. So then they reversed the O'Connor roll with Matt assisting Nick to get the win. Jay and Juice immediately attacked. 
Matt was about to get his arm crushed in a chair when FTR's music hit. They slid in from the crowd to attack and all four guys hit Shatter Machine on Juice and a Super Kick Party. Actually, I should say the gun saved Jay from Super Kick Party. FTR then crouched behind the Bucks in the end, but didn't make a move, which we saw earlier from Cole and MJF. It was the same exact end of segment type of deal. I didn't particularly care for any of it. It wasn't bad by any means, but the botched finish plus the immediate attack, just kind of eye rolling. I don't really have much of a take on it overall because it didn't set up or change anything that wasn't already booked. Though it does seem like post all in, we might get elite versus bullet club gold. And even though they're on different brands, if they can make that happen, that would be really interesting. On collision, Samoa Joe squashed a jobber in like 90 seconds, winning with Kukina Clutch. He called himself the king of television and said, the real world champion, referring to CM Punk, is acting like a real bitch. That got a pop. Joe said he was aggravated because he asked rather than demanded, but still didn't get an answer from Punk. So instead, he would convince Punk as promised last week. Typically great Samoa Joe promo. He never misses on the mic. There was no reason whatsoever to have this match. Just let people walk out and cut promos. This is what I was saying before with Aussie Open. Another example of it. On Collision, the trio's title was on the line in the main event, House of Black against CMFTR. A reminder off the top that this match happened with no storyline. Also, after we were back doing House Rules last week and the entire aesthetic, the whole deal, none of that was used for this match. FTR took Brody King off the ropes with a superplex as Punk followed with a flying elbow. FTR was unable to lift King for Shatter Machine, so Punk got involved for a super version, only for Buddy Matthews to break everything up. Punk and Malachi Black hit simultaneous kicks in a really cool spot, but Samoa Joe appeared out of the crowd to choke Punk out with Coquina Clutch over the barricade. No one saw this as Julia Hart was distracting on the ring apron, and then Brody hit Dax Harwood with a discus lariat for the win. Strong match. At 27 minutes, it was immensely indulgent and kind of unnecessarily long. It was a weak collision. Another match could have gone 10 minutes without this being affected too much. That's what I would have done, but I still went 3.75 stars and a B plus. Joe choking out Punk was a great visual. From a creative standpoint, it's kind of ridiculous that someone like Punk, who operates on this hairline trigger, could get called out twice by someone the caliber of Samoa Joe and simply not respond to him for two weeks. Overall, though, a worthy, it was an entertaining main event as well. It capped for me, though, I, I said this earlier, what was a disappointing collision. On collision, the acclaimed fought Iron Savages. Apparently, this is an ROH team. Why would you feature them in the opening match for the show? I have no idea. The gimmick here was acclaimed overpowering bigger guys. They took out the manager with Scissor Me Timbers and then hit a double Famouser for the win. The crowd loved it. That's what matters most. After the bell, acclaimed held up Billy Gunn's boots again and got the crowd to cheer for him. Again, the fans loved it, but I just found it to be pretty weak. On Dynamite, the acclaimed entered for a match against some jobbers when suddenly the lights went out and House of Black appeared behind them. They attacked in street clothes with King, wrapping a chain around his fist to slug Max Caster. Then he and Buddy hit their tag finisher on Anthony Bowens. Buddy somehow sliced his arm with the blade that Caster used to gig himself. Then he stomped Caster into the canvas as Malachi Black raised Billy's boots. So let me get this straight. The acclaimed failed in two different trios matches against House of Black. The second time, Billy retired because of it. House of Black has since defended the titles twice against other opponents, maybe three times actually. Acclaimed doesn't call them out or mention them at all. They don't even say they're really going after the trio's titles again. Yet House of Black attacks this team that they've already beaten twice because they want Billy's boots. 
This coming after they attacked Andrade because they wanted his mask, but then didn't retain the mask. They lost it to Andrade. And it was necessary to do this on Dynamite instead of keeping it on Collision Saturday. This screams almost like they're trying to do a trios title match at all in, maybe with a nonsensical title change coming. I would not understand that booking one iota if that's what transpires. On Rampage, Sky Blue fought Soraya in a qualifier. This main evented. Sky hit Code Blue but didn't win because both outcasts distracted. Ruby Soho uh, sprayed Sky in the face with Soraya hitting Rampage for the win. I know the outcasts are heels, but every one of their matches ends exactly the same way. And given this was a qualifier for a women's title match on a huge show, and given Soraya is an extremely notable wrestler in AEW's world and everywhere, it was the height of absurdity that they could not let her get a more clean victory over Sky Frickin' Blue. Even if there was a distraction or interference, you have that be earlier in the match, and then you let her win on her own at the end. This was just atrocious booking. That is one big pile of shit. On Collision, Tony Storm backstage was excited that she and Soraya were both in the title match. She said the faces are not to be trusted. They're all toxic little girls. When the interviewer brought up Hikaru Shida, Storm got frenzied and called herself fragile. Then she threw a heel at her. I thought Tony did a better job with this last week than this week, but I do like the gimmick that they're doing with her. On Dynamite, Britt Baker fought the Bunny in the other qualifier. Backstage at Rampage, Baker kind of put over Bunny, but said she'd end her comeback early by qualifying for All In. This was called round one of a tournament, but it was just two qualifiers. It wasn't a tournament. After a couple forced women's main events, uh, like over the last couple of weeks in AEW, this was back in the standard spot with an immediate commercial break. Penelope Ford stole Baker's glove, so Baker instead won moments later with the stomp. I realized here there's like five people in AEW doing the stomp. Like Buddy Matthews does it, Britt Baker does it, John Moxley now does it. I think there's another person, so that would be four total. Uh, in any case, if you thought there was going to be another result here, obviously you were kidding yourself. They should have just announced the four ways straight on and not done qualifiers. There's not anything else to say here because we didn't get promos or a storyline or really anything else. On Dynamite, Jeff Hardy fought Jeff Jarrett. There was a taped promo from Jarrett on Rampage announcing this would be, just get this, a Texas Chainsaw Massacre death match championship. Yeah, two dudes, a combined 101 years old, competing in a death match with no storyline, let alone something even necessitating a death match stipulation. This is exactly my type of wrestling. This is what the Silver King loves. So Hardy comes to the ring, but immediately walks into a random backstage area where I guess he knew Jarrett was waiting for him with weapons. How would he know that? I don't know. Uh, Karen was back there. Satnam Singh attacked Jeff. And really, once that happened, 30 seconds after the bell rang, you knew this was going to be off the rails. Matt Hardy, Ethan Page, and Isaiah Cassidy then attacked. They dumped a bucket of quote-unquote blood onto Jarrett's head. So then they get to ringside eventually after brawling in this backstage area and smoke billows out from underneath the ring for no reason. Sunjay Dutt is now fighting. I actually thought Jay Lethal had avoided involvement in this. He showed up in cowboy boots at the end. Hardy hit a swanton bomb on Jarrett through a table for a broken fall because Lethal, not legal by the way, in the singles match that featured nine people at one point, interfered. Dutt kicked Page in the balls. Then Karen low blowed Matt. Hardy then stole a guitar from Jarrett and smacked him over the head with it. So that's the end of the match, right? No, it is not. 
Leatherface, who I guess is from these movies. I don't really watch horror movies. Uh, a guy, and it wasn't Leatherface like full Hollywood makeup, ready to go, coming right out of the picture, you know, really cool and well done looking. It was a guy in a truly horrible rubber Halloween mask. Comes down with a chainsaw. He attacked the heels and chased Karen away. So Singh then holds Hardy as Lethal hits him with a hammer. And then Lethal puts Jared on top of Hardy for the win. It was perhaps one of the worst matches I have ever seen. Jared also got to hold up a championship belt with Leatherface on it, which I know they called it a championship. I really didn't think there was going to be a title. Fuck me if this was bad. Definite worst match of the year contender. Maybe the runaway winner. A sponsored singles match turned into a nine-person brawl. A death match used fake blood. A random championship was awarded. Karen Jarrett existed. Jeff Jarrett beat Matt Hardy. The smoke, the guy in the rubber mask, not even a fully appointed like movie-level costume to try and sell some realism. It was like they threw this together in two hours. I don't think I've done this on either show in a really long time, but I got to do it here. Zero point zero. Zero point zero, Mr. Blutarski. Block at zero. I hate this. I hate this crap. Stop. Stop with the crap. I don't even want to hear shit anymore about like the zombie match during the pandemic or the Mountain Dew match. This set a new low bar and there's no two ways about it. Now, I'm going to end this on a positive though. Apparently, AEW got paid like $100,000 for this. And if they included that 100K in their charitable contributions to Maui, because Tony Khan announced before this was going to be an impromptu kind of fight for the fallen show with all proceeds going to Hawaii, then I will watch something that shitty at any time if $100,000 is going to help people in need. So credit to that if that is what happened. If it was just padding AEW's books, yikes. And also, let me say this, and this goes for AEW, and it goes for WWE as well. Just because you have a sponsored match doesn't mean it can't be good. Put some effort into this stuff. You can make it kitschy and corny, but still entertaining and well done. It doesn't have to be an absolute shit fest like this was. On Rampage, there was an international title match, Orange Cassidy defending against Johnny TV, Harley Cameron sang Johnny's entrance, which actually came across kind of unique, even though she's a much better rapper than she is a singer. Wheeler Yuta distracted at one point, then jumped on commentary. Orange hit a diving DDT and tornado DDT, plus Orange Punch and Beach Break for the win. Another match with no rhyme or reason, not even a good one, despite some pretty talented competitors. BCC surrounded the ring, but didn't do anything. Yuta then cut a really weak promo, challenging for the title next week. At least there is a reason for this match happening even if Yuta hasn't exactly earned the title shot. So on Dynamite, we got that match, International Championship, Orange, Yuta. This opened the show, it definitely hit. BCC came out late with Orange feigning Orange Punch and instead hitting Paradigm Shift. John Moxley was unimpressed. Then Cassidy hit Orange Punch and sold the injured hand with Yuta locking in the seatbelt for a really good 2.9 false finish. Orange then folded him over with a pinning combination for the win because as you're gonna hear me say later, AEW loves finishes exactly like that. BCC attacked Orange immediately with best friends making the save and then Lucha Brothers helping clear the ring of the heels. So BCC grabbed chairs and then Eddie Kingston returned. Eddie went right after Claudio. We got like a nine-man brawl. Kingston then challenged for Stadium Stampede 
at all in London. Kingston looked night and day better than he did like a month ago in AEW. And that's bound to happen when you compete in the G1 and you work your ass off in that schedule in Japan. So good for him. Uh, He looked great. And this was probably the single best booking decision that I think Tony Khan has made for All In. Stadium Stampede is going to allow them to show off this ridiculously large crowd and Wembley Stadium itself for 20, 30 minutes. I'm a little concerned of putting a long match like this as part of what's already going to be a really long show. But again, they're going to be able to use the visuals from this match for as long as the company exists. It's a really smart idea. I'm very curious to see who the other three guys are going to be joining the heels. Does the storyline make 1000% sense? No, but they have been building the babyface side and the BCC side. So from a storyline standpoint, it all comes together. But again, I'm curious about who the other three heels are going to be. The match was also strong, that, by the way, the one we got on Dynamite, 3.75 stars and a B plus. On Dynamite, Jack Perry cut a tape promo saying he would retire the FTW title next week on Dynamite. We'll see what happens there. On Collision, Powerhouse Hobbs cut a strange promo about Book of Hobbs and said the next chapter was redemption. So in order to get past his loss of the TNT title and his loss in the Owen tournament, he needed to fight the Redeemer. Out came Miro, only for Aaron Solo and Nick Camarado to attack him from behind. Miro took them out, but Hobbs caught him blind with a spine buster. So look, let me get this straight. He's still doing the Book of Hobbs gimmick, and he's still working with QTV, even though he should be well away from them. And last week, dismissed QT Marshall's advances despite accepting the chain. And what was the all-out match they were talking about, or the match in Chicago? Is it just Miro on collision instead of actually at all-out? Maybe that's the case. Also, you have now Hobbs and Miro. So Hobbs is going to continue his losing streak, right? Because... They're not going to have him beat Miro. What the fuck are we doing here? This is bullshit, man. On Rampage, Darby Allen fought Brian Cage. Commentary called this a grudge match to explain it happening. It was the first time they've wrestled since January 2021. Cage kind of looked like a road warrior with his face paint. Darby hit coffin drop on the apron. Cage tripped him, trying it inside for a nasty landing, adding a helicopter-style F5. Allen came back with an avalanche crucifix bomb and won with an inside cradle. Luchasaurus, of course, attacked him immediately after the bell. Darby is clearly going to win this TNT title off of him uh, after another boring reign where Luchasaurus has done absolutely nothing. It was a fun, big, small match that we got on Rampage. Both guys look good. AEW relies way too much on surprise pins to protect losers who don't need to be protected. Brian Cage does not need to be protected here. I'd much have rather to seen Darby just beat his ass clean. On Dynamite, Darby and Nick Wayne fought Gates of Agony. The heels attacked during the babyface entrance. The bell rang, then Swerve Strickland and A.R. Fox immediately entered with chairs. Wayne hit a moonsault outside as Darby hit Coffin Drop inside for the win. Swerve and Fox threatened, so Sting appeared on the big screen with like a Joker-type smile, face paint, pretty much doing the Heath Ledger character. Uh, Apparently, he kidnapped Prince Nana, but then when Nana stood up to walk away, he was allowed to. Anyway, uh, Sting was kind of like crazy in this promo and said it's going to be a coffin match at all in him and Darby against Swerve and AR Fox. It's probably better if I don't say anything about this and move on, but I'm going to say this. I like Joker Sting, but it feels almost like it's forced. Like if it was more natural and came out, you know, I don't even know when Dark Knight came out, but 
it feels like a decade ago, then you could say, oh, yeah, yeah, that all kind of works together. But now he's doing that character in 2023. And I don't know, it's it's it makes Sting interesting. And I thought the promo was kind of manic and crazy in a good way. But it also doesn't really make sense why he's so nuts about this. It's almost like they're just doing it because it's all in. On Collision, the TNT title was on the line. Luchasaurus against Brock Anderson. You heard that correct. Christian Cage, before the match, put LeBron James over Michael Jordan and himself over Ric Flair for cheap heat because they were in North Carolina. The crowd kept forcing itself to respond because Christian was like meandering and really weak in this promo, way below his normal quality. So eventually, Arn Anderson interrupts with Brock, trying to get through to Luchasaurus that he's the champion, not Christian. And then this match happened with Luchasaurus winning and Darby attacking with the skateboard. He had a nice double stomp with the wheels of the board onto Luchasaurus's back. And then Darby challenged Christian next week, promising to put respect back on the TNT title. Again, he's obviously going to win this title at All Out. The post-match was one-eighth at most of this entire segment, yet it was the only part that was actually entertaining. Everything else from Christian's promo to Arn Anderson to the match itself, it was dreadful. And lastly, on collision, Chris Statlander and Willow Nightingale fought Mercedes Martinez and Diamante. Martinez powerbombed Diamante over the ropes onto the faces. Then Willow completely no-sold half of an exploder suplex to pounce her out of the ring. Stat hit the Fisherman's Buster on Diamante. Then Martinez reversed a Nightingale pinning combination with Diamante doing like the Usos extra leverage boot to the back for the heel victory. Tagging was non-existent in the latter portion of the match. I did like to see Martinez get a TV victory for a change. That was cool. But if it just leads to another TBS title match that she loses again, then what does it matter really? What are we doing here? You know what I mean? So folks, that was it from AEW this week. Clearly a ton that we had to talk about. There was a lot of good, don't get me wrong, but there was also a lot of bad and collision. It was more collision, not living up to like what it has done the last two months. When you combine that with some of the stuff we got in hour two of Dynamite, and of course, Rampage just existing at all, it made for a rougher week than you would want as the penultimate week before All In. Obviously, Collision here is going to basically be the go-home show this coming Saturday, and then AEW Dynamite, the true go-home show on Wednesday. And of course, next week, when we talk about AEW, we will have your AEW All In Ultimate Preview as a separate episode. We will do NXT on Wednesday and AEW on Thursday. But speaking of NXT, let's go ahead and get to that. This for me was a huge bounce back episode coming out of a really disappointing show last week. Knocked this one out of the park with a ton of character development, interesting storylines, promos, and there was a banger match on the show as well. So Carmelo Hayes was signing autographs when Wesley stepped up angry that Melo wouldn't answer his calls or texts. Melo told him, worry about DiJack. Wes was confident, saying Melo needed to finish his autographs so they could fight for the title at Heatwave. It was again Wes being like contentious, really for no reason at all, but the segment worked overall. DiJack later interrupted the same signing with Melo giving him the same message, focus on Wes. This all worked well enough. It's kind of a silly setup, and Wes's sudden character change remains really odd to me. I understand the guy lost the title and he lost, I think, a second match after that, but he was on such a large winning streak and no one's diminishing him anymore. So like why all the angst? Like it's almost like he's a teenager. Calm down. You know, you're still being featured in major matches. You're good. Now, Eddie Thorpe got another Native American vignette talking about unleashing his fighting spirit with Dijak being the target of his focus that he will move toward without fear. It was fine. The production of it worked, but it was basically one note. They made a huge mistake though, because they aired this 
before the number one contendership, which gave away the winner of the match because Thorpe is basically challenging Dijak again. Yet he's not going to do that if Dijak became number one contender because Dijak would be focused on Carmelo Hayes at that point. So anyway, we got Wesley against Dijak in number one contendership. West dodged a kick, catching Dijak's leg for a one-arm powerbomb, followed by a Meteora. But as he went to do the cardiac kick, a shoulder that Dijak had been working all match gave out on him. So then Dijak lifted West for Feast Your Eyes, but the knee West had been more similarly working all match gave out on him. Dijak followed with a one-legged version of his high justice for a false finish. Then he rotated West off the ring apron, flinging him into the steel steps and over the barricade. Thorpe appeared and distracted enough so West could hurricanrana Dijak into the steel steps. He followed with the cardiac kick and a corkscrew senton for the win. This was a tremendous TV match. We almost never see two wrestlers simultaneously selling injuries that they suffered during the match and all of it coming together to cost them a finishing sequence. The only flaw was Wes hitting the cardiac kick because if he just failed to do it, why was his shoulder suddenly strong enough two minutes later? Especially when he had a second finisher and the corkscrew sent on anyway, so he could have just won with that. He didn't really need the cardiac kick. It's a minor gripe. The match was a banger. And I'm going four stars A minus for it. Just a blast for a mid-show battle. Wes walked out of Shawn Michaels' office with a heatwave contract and a heelish smirk on his face. He dropped the contract in front of Mello, who gave it back to him, saying he would just see him next Tuesday. So Wes pushed the autographs off the table, kicked out one of the legs, and then dragged the table out of the room all the way into the ring. Really unique way to set up a contract signing. Mello put over Wes as a great North American champion, but said he folded like a chair on an Alabama boardwalk after facing just a little adversity with a few losses. Wes talked about overcoming tons of adversity and proving all his doubters wrong. It was a really rousing promo. Mello said that he feels Wes on most of what he's saying, but he won't and can't beat him one-on-one. Wes came back saying he's going to turn another doubter into another believer, but Mello told him don't go chasing waterfalls, saying he can't miss next week. They both signed the contract and Mello held the title high, so Wes did a standing double stomp, splitting the table in half and getting right in Mello's face to end it. So despite all the contrived shit backstage, this was a straight fire contract signing. Wes was crushing it on the mic. Mello was right there with him. It strangely made this feel like whoever loses this match needs to leave NXT because Wes went deep here and he would seemingly have nowhere else to go if he loses. Meanwhile, Mello basically stuck his nose up in the air at Wes. So it would almost be embarrassing if he lost the title. Even though I wasn't a huge fan of Wes's like quick character change and the stuff with the autograph signing, this final segment, it absolutely delivered. It was so hot that it felt like it was a promo you cut before a premium live event or a title change, not a random TV match. And in that way, this was very similar to what happened on AEW with Adam Cole and MJF. There was a bunch of contrived, kind of corny, ridiculous bullshit that happened. And then once they actually got in the ring and were able to cut promos, they totally delivered and cleansed the palate from what we got before. Very strange to be able to juxtapose those on consecutive nights in the same week. Rhea Ripley and Dominic Mysterio were hanging out backstage with Rhea pissed about Lyra Valkyria and what she did to her last week. Ripley commanded the promo completely. She challenged Valkyria and Dragon Lee to a mixed tag team match next week. 
The faces later commiserated about the match. Valkyria said they need to get together. They both spoke in their own languages. Dragon pointed out that he was married. And she said, hey, when I meant get together, I just mean get on the same page. Dragon actually had a couple funny lines here. My guess is we didn't get promotion of them, meaning them uh, being Dominic and Rhea on the show because WWE wanted to see what NXT could do ratings wise on its own. And I actually think that's smart to determine whether these ratings are sustainable without major main roster talent. Also, the expected match that we're getting here is going to be damn fun. I can't imagine it's not going to be great. I would have Dragon Lee beat Dominic here, setting up a rematch for the title. That said, there's a lot of interesting things going on with the North American Championship. Let me also mention, if anyone hears a snoring dog in the background of this uh, section of the show, my dog is snoring his head off in the corner, so I apologize. I don't want to move him or disturb him. Hopefully, you don't hear it, and I'm able to cut it out in post. Nevertheless, I just wanted to apologize for that uh, at this moment. Uh, Mustafa Ali wore a beautiful blue suit, giving a political style speech behind a podium with the North American Championship emblem. He said the title is not being respected the way it deserves, pointing out that Dominic spits in the face of family values and is a convicted criminal. He put himself over as a champion inside and outside of the ring, and Ali promised to elevate the title while inspiring people across the continent that you can be successful doing things the right way. It ended with, this message is approved by a North American candidate. I absolutely loved this. I mentioned last week that the gimmick is completely over with me. A guy who says he's doing things the right way and appears to be trying to live up to that, but also take shortcuts whenever opportunities present themselves. This video package completely hammered that home. And it also harkened back, you may remember, to that unreleased promo that Ali shared on social media back in November 2021, where he did a very similar political style speech, but as more of a heel. This was as good as that, if not better. And he stepped up his suit game big time. Plus, who better to take down a convicted criminal than a Chicago police officer? I am totally into this gimmick. I hope he eventually wins the title. I just don't know how they're going to decide between whether Ali or Dragon Lee is the one who beats Dominic. Very curious to see how that transpires. Baron Corbin hit the ring talking shit about running an Olympic gold medalist out of WWE after he got a small taste of what he's about. It should be noted here that Gable Stevenson's name has not been uttered on WWE TV since that match. Corbin called the entire locker room a bunch of soft-ass bitches. Then he explained that burn the ships means he wants to usher in a new era for himself where he returns to the main event. This is what I was saying back at the show and, and when they introduced burn the ships, they ran this burn the ships thing for multiple weeks and never explained what it meant. They just introduced this new gimmick with a pirate ship and all this stuff. And you're like, what the hell does any of this mean if you didn't already know the phrase? And now here we are three weeks later, four weeks later, and it's finally being explained. This should have been on the go home show before the premium live event. Mr. Stone uh, interrupted all of this, claiming Von Wagner would stay in Corbin's way. Corbin demanded Wagner speak for himself because talking on the stick is key to succeeding in the business. There was a really funny back and forth where Wagner got the mic and Corbin's like, you know what, this is a bad idea. Let's not do this. Uh, Wagner actually did pretty well for himself, calling out Corbin's string of shitty gimmicks. He said that he was gonna move up the ladder and Corbin was in his way. Then he delivered the you're gonna get tabled line. Corbin swung, Wagner answered. They got separated before a table spot at the end. I gotta admit, this was hotter than I expected. 
Corbin's promo was excellent, his best in years. Wagner's promo was his best ever. That's obviously not saying much. I wouldn't say Vaughn stepped up to the challenge per se, but rather he did not embarrass himself. Corbin went inside baseball, but he didn't go too far inside. It totally delivered. Corbin later in the parking lot credited Wagner for having the balls to say something to his face. Braun Breaker stepped up to him saying he's not finished with Wagner, so Corbin shot back that his ass got put through a table last week. Breaker said he'd be watching next week, and Corbin said he may intimidate most of the locker room, but not him. This was a perfect follow-up to the other segment. I presume Braun's going to interfere next week, and we're going to get a triple threat. Otherwise, he will need to get retribution on Vaughn while wanting to fight Corbin separately, which doesn't really work, but I did think this was a really interesting back and forth. Trick Williams fought Drew Gulak. Damon Kemp was with the heels for the first time. Williams ate a ringside German suplex from Charlie Dempsey with the referee distracted. There were more distractions with Briggs and Jensen eventually evening the sides before Trick hit a roundhouse kick for the win. It was a nice showing for Trick. He needs a lot more reps. He still has a ways to go, especially with his move set. Everything he does is just so basic. He is way too talented and way too athletic to be that generic. And I don't need a guy, especially a guy his size, doing a roundhouse kick. Let him use his power. Let him use his athleticism. I would do some variation of a driver or a bomb or even a high risk move. I'm definitely curious to see what Ilya Dragunov is able to pull out of him next week. Speaking of Dragunov, he later got a promo package where he expected Williams to bring his confidence and his courage, but he promised to bring his raging fire against him. He said Trick after next week would understand why he's more dangerous than anyone can imagine. Normal Dragunov promo, solid as usual. The tag team championships were on the line, D'Angelo family defending against the Dyad. This opened NXT with Schism and its minions ringside. Stax was singled out for a while. Tony D'Angelo got the hot tag, but wound up decimated only for Ivy Nile to walk down the ramp. The entirety of Schism confronted her, which was obviously overkill for one person. Uh, that allowed two other Schism masked dudes to jump out of the crowd and take out Dyad including Julius Creed's signature slam with the champions retaining the titles. Joe Gacy and Ava turned around shocked to hear the bell. The faces celebrated. This was paint by numbers in terms of what you would expect from the storyline. We now know without a shadow of a doubt, it's the Creed's under the masks. So what's left to figure out is how to overcome this loser leaves NXT stipulation. Schism all confronting Ivy. It was dumb from a kayfabe standpoint. It did make for a good visual, but you don't need 26 people to confront a woman who's what, 4'11", 5'2". Also, this did kind of work to establish D'Angelo family as the new champions, but simultaneously didn't because Dyad has been beaten in title matches so many times. Uh, Daba Kato got a vignette talking about stepping out of Apollo Crew's shadow, ready to cast his own in NXT. I think this was the same package they aired like a month ago or longer maybe. I don't know. It didn't accomplish anything or teach us anything new about him. Tyler Bate fought Joe Coffey. We saw an anonymous video of Bate and Coffey getting into it during a public appearance. Backstage, Bate said he wouldn't let Coffey's anger affect him. This went back and forth. It was basically even when suddenly Dabakato attacked Bate for a disqualification. He also went after Coffey, but Gallus saved their brother. So then Cato focused on Bate. And I will say he absolutely destroyed him with a sit-down choke bomb. He honestly looked like he murdered Tyler Bate. I'm not a huge fan, though, of the finish because this could have just been a post-match attack. It ruined a match that was already happening. And what's the result? Like, Coffee's not going to be bothered by it, but now we get into a Daba Kato Tyler Bate program? I mean, that's not that exciting. Kato looked good. It was the only part of this I liked. Uh, Dana Brooke fought Blair Davenport. Dana wore all black and showed some attitude. 
Blair hit a really nice springboard double stomp and a sliding boot. Brooke also picked Davenport off the ropes for a shockingly good sit-down powerbomb. Dana came back with a huge lariat and grabbed the ring bell. Kalani Jordan took it from her, asking what she's thinking. Dana then got caught with a huge knee to the face and a kamagoye with Blair getting the win. After the bell, Dana looked disgusted when she felt Kalani's hand on her shoulder, comforting her, clearly getting ready to turn heel. And I think we've known that heel turn is coming sooner than later. I'd be lying if I said I wasn't interested. I told you guys I was hating this stuff with Dana and Kalani Jordan. Somehow, Dana now has me caring about this character. She's put on the two best matches of her entire career over the last couple of weeks in NXT. And now she actually has an intriguing character. You know, good for her taking this opportunity and actually improving. You can see the week-to-week progress in the ring. Now, if she can only step up the promo, they might have something with her. Thea Hale fought JC Jane. Andre Chase told Duke Hudson that he got the match made to get Thea feeling better and back in the win column. Hale came up really pissy that he knows what's best for her. He thinks he knows what's best for her. So then Duke turned and supported Thea instead, which Chase pointed out, like, why did you do that? This was even until Thea got the Kimura lock. JC reached the ropes and hit a cradle spine buster. Jane uh, ripped off a turnbuckle pad, so Chase jumped on the apron to fix it. That distracted Hale as she yelled at him, and then Jane caught Hale with an inside cradle for the win. Hudson blamed Chase after the bell, and Hale stormed past them backstage. You know, it's it's she's doing the pissy teenager character. It's fine. Hudson, we thought, was finally fully aligned with Chase, but now he's kind of playing both sides. We're going to have to see where the storyline ends up. NXT aired audio, and I got confused about what this was exactly. I thought it was from Hector Garza giving Angel Garza and Humberto Creo a pep talk, saying family's always there, even when other things in life fail you. He also spoke about them as cousins, saying the time has come for no more games or distractions, but to create a new beginning together. All of this was spliced with photos and videos of them and the Garza family in Mexico. So like, here's the thing. Hector's been dead since 2013. So I'm not sure if this was like something the family had or they used AI to do it, or maybe another member of the Garza clan taped it or a voiceover artist. It was the perfect follow-up to last week, getting the guys to focus on their new mission. Again, very telenovela-esque. I'm interested to see what the repackaging looks like. But again, I'm just kind of confused about what this actually was. Uh, Supernova Sessions interrupted hard-hitting home truths. It was the most interesting either segment has been in NXT. I still think Nathan Frazier's version of this needs to go away. He's way better than it. It at least allows him to show some personality. But the Heritage Cup is going to be on the line next week. In fact, we might as well just move to our NXT Heatwave mini preview and just go over the five matches that have been announced for the show. I say five. I think a sixth has actually been announced. Uh, NXT Championship Carmelo Hayes against Wes Lee. I have Carmelo Hayes retaining the title. You're not changing the title this quickly, and you're not changing it on television. Rhea Ripley and Dominic Mysterio against Lyra Valkyria and Dragon Lee. I do think Dragon over Dominic makes sense if they're going to run that title match back. If not, you put Ripley over Valkyria. I wouldn't have Dominic beat Dragon. That would make zero sense whatsoever. Trick Williams against Ilya Dragunov. You have to have Dragunov beat Williams unless they are calling him up to the main roster immediately, in which case... He goes out on his back, Trick gets a huge win, and becomes an upper mid-carder. That would be cool. I don't think it makes any sense for Ilya not to win, though. Baron Corbin against Von Wagner. I just have a feeling there's going to be Braun Breaker interference here. And look, Corbin is actually getting over. Having Wagner beat him would be terrible. So I do have Corbin winning this match. Heritage Cup, Nathan Frazier against Noam Dar. 
the storyline has been really convoluted. I don't see why you would put the cup on Frazier just to take it off of him this quickly against Dar. Again, Frazier didn't even beat Dar for the cup. He beat Oro Mensa. So now given a chance to beat Dar, you need to have him beat Dar. That is what makes the most sense. And I think the other match that's announced is Ivy Nile against Ava. Ava's first or second singles match on TV. You have to have Ivy Nile win this. You absolutely have to. So that is the mini preview for NXT Heatwave, which we will discuss in full next Wednesday, right here on the Getting Over Wrestling podcast in an NXT only episode. Maybe we get an interview. If we do, we'll add it to that show. But as of right now, Wednesday, NXT, Thursday next week, your AEW all-in ultimate preview. Vintage Chris Vanini has confirmed that he will join for that show. Besides those two episodes, of course, next Tuesday, we will have our normal WWE episode. And then don't forget, after All In, we will have your AEW All In Instant Analysis podcast. But we're going to go over all of that next week here on Getting Over. Just wanted to tease you with it right here and now. On the way out of today's show, allow me to hit you with some reminders first that the Getting Over Wrestling podcast is all about So please leave those five-star ratings for us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify on Apple. If you leave a five-star written review, we will read it live right here on the show. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast for episode drops, news analysis, highlights, and all of that. If you already follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast, don't forget to retweet our stuff Reply with your comments, thoughts. As you can tell, we will read them right here on the show. Please also remember. I happen to love the number... Five. And I hope you all do as well for five bucks a month or $50 for the year. You can become an official getting overhead. You get tons of bonus audio every week. You get a news post every week. And more important than any of that, your money goes directly to supporting this show. Thank you all for listening to this edition of the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. It is time for the Silver King to sign off and leave you with just three final words. Bye for now. 